Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Next Generation Innovators, a future women podcast in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Entrepreneurs Program. Each week we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. I'm joined again today by my co-host, Alicia Stevenson, Chief Commercial Officer at Future Women. Hello, lovely. Hello again, Brooke. It's great to be back. I am really looking forward to speaking to our guest today. She has a background in the NGO sector that led her to recognise that businesses have the opportunity to create impact with every decision they make. And she's now the co-founder and COO of Elements Natural Vitamin T, which is the world's first 100% natural vitamin T. She's gained a number of very significant recognitions, including a Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award for Victoria, and also featured in Forbes Asia 30 Under 30. Julie Hirsch, welcome to Next Generation Innovators. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on today. You met your co-founder, Nicole Lamond, at a writer's retreat. Tell us how you knew this was the person you wanted to be in business with. Nicole and I always say, if you've critiqued someone's creative writing for five years, you can definitely go into business with them. We were actually friends for such a long time before we even started talking about going into business with each other. And because we were friends in an area outside of the business world, we really knew about each other's values and how we worked. And so when we said, hey, we've got this idea, should we give it a go? It flowed really well. Um, and yeah, we, we decided to jump into what's been now almost a four-year journey. That's awesome. Let's talk about the journey in the tea. So Elements is the world's sort of first range of natural vitamin and mineral teas. When, which seems really obvious when, you know, <laughs> I mean, the two things go together. It's just, yeah, it's, it's one of those things when someone does it, you're suddenly like, yes, okay, absolutely. That's when, the best part of innovation is when someone says, I can't believe someone has, hasn't done that before. You know that you've hit something that's going to work because it's an idea that you can understand fruit and herbal extracts in a cup of tea that have naturally occurring vitamins. It just makes sense. No, it absolutely does. So when, tell us about the light bulb moment, like the innovation moment. So as I said, Nicole and I were friends for years before we started this business. We were both incredibly busy professional women. So Nicole was actually one of the founding board members of Fairtrade Australia in New Zealand. And at the time I was deputy director of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, which is a climate action NGO. And we would talk a lot about how, as busy women, it was so hard to focus on our health and well-being during the chaos of the day. No one had time to count how many fruit and veg they were eating. And actually, only about 5% of Australian adults eat enough fruit and veg every single day for their recommended daily intake. So we thought, you know, there are supplements there, but a lot of them are synthetic. And we would just put them on the shelf, forget to take them. And it's not really nice swallowing a tablet. So we tried to figure out, can we add a natural nutrient boost into something we were already doing, which was our daily cup of tea? And no one 
forgets to have their daily cup of tea. Oh, no, that's absolutely essential. More essential than fruit and vegetables, I don't know. Exactly. And depending on the person, depends on how many cups of tea you actually have during yeah, the day. Exactly. So in each of these tea bags, there are nine essential vitamins and minerals. And two years of research went into this before you sold your first box in 2018. Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, well, two years of research and development is an incredibly long time to sit in not knowing whether you can actually make the product that you want to make. So no one had ever made a natural vitamin T before. We're still the only organic certified vitamin T on the market. Um, And so we didn't know if it was possible to actually do this, but we figured like people have been to the moon. Of course we can blend (laughs) fruit and herbal extracts with fair trade tea. It has to be possible. We went through two R&D companies. We tried to manufacture in Australia first. Then we tried the US. Then we tried Sri Lanka. We ended up finding a manufacturer in the UK who was willing to take a bet on this product and give it a try for us. But understandably, they weren't willing to take liability if it didn't work. So we did a seed funding round to pay for the ingredients for this industrial size trial And if it hadn't have worked, we would have wasted a third of our entire seed funding round. So luckily for us, it did work. (laughs) And our two-woman company ended up with a patent-pending manufacturing method, which is just so unlikely and something we're really proud that we actually pulled off. But we got really used to asking a lot of questions. And when people would say to us, you can't do this, We got really used to saying, okay, we can't do it that way. What's our next step here? I think that's a really, really, really good point, Julie, because it it can be befuddling and bewildering depending on who you speak to. And I think people have such a confusing idea of the R&D process. If we can dive into that for a second, why does the R&D process take so long? It depends on what you're trying to create. If you have a template for the product that you want to create, so if someone's done it before and it's not a patented method, You can often find manufacturers to partner with who sort of know what they're doing and can take you through the process, which can really shortcut things. For us, we're not scientists, we're not engineers, we're not manufacturers. We were two professional women who were trying to create a product for other women like us. So it was really important finding the right partners and finding partners who believed in what we were trying to do so that they weren't going to take us down paths that we knew we were never going to accept. And we live in a very global world now. So there is so much expertise in Australia as well as globally to tap into if you're willing to sort of take the ego out of it and ask a lot of questions. So what did you learn along the way? So many things. (laughs) You're like, where do I start? Exactly. I learned that if you are committed to the vision that you have for a product, it is almost always possible. It can take an incredibly long time and it can be terrifying and nerve wracking and you can get knocked down and said no to a million different times. But if you're really committed to that vision, you will eventually find a way. As I said, we went to multiple countries, we tried multiple R&D companies, but we were always committed to the idea that we wanted to create the world's first natural vitamin T. We wanted to use beautiful extracts from the guava plant, from carrots, from lemon, 
and use those extracts to add a boost of nutrients into a fair trade cup of tea. Those were non-negotiable for us. And so rather than taking shortcuts, we just had to learn to keep pushing. And I think when you get a product on shelf like that, people feel it. They understand the passion and the thought and the determination that's gone into that product. And it's not something tangible. It's not something you can market. But I do truly feel like you can sense it in a product that's gone through that very thoughtful R&D process. No, absolutely. And so we just rolling back a little bit um, with when you mentioned partners, can you give us just a general overview of the people that are involved in this kind of process? You know, when you say partners, who are the key players? What made up the kind of ecosystem to make the tea possible? So we're a fair trade certified company, which is the most rigorous ethical trading certification in the world, which means that a lot of our partners are actually fair trade collectives. So that's a collective of farmers in developing countries who grow the teas and spices that go into our product. Now, it's very unusual to have a close partnership with the grower in um, a food and beverage product. But because we're fair trade, we actually ended up with really close relationships with these collectives. And honestly, that has absolutely saved us during COVID and the disruptions around supply chain that COVID has brought with it. On top of that, we also have the manufacturing process that our patent is based on. And we've got an incredible partner named Alan who believed in us from day one and was willing to just really work with us on this product and make it a reality. And I think when I look back at our R&D journey and honestly our journey post R&D into launch and selling the product, it's really been about those people who have been on the journey with us and really believe in what we're doing and sort of take a bet on us. And I think a lot of other businesses have those stories as well of, of the people who have made it possible outside of your core team. And that's a really beautiful thing because it means you're not alone on the startup journey. So why was the ethical and sustainable side of the business so important to you? It was a non-negotiable for us from day one. As I said, both of us, my my co-founder and I, we came from the NGO sector and from the for-purpose sector. So there was no way that we were going to create a product that left the world a worse place than before we did it. We were spending so much time on this thing. It had to make the world a better place. As I said, we're fair trade certified, which means that the farmers who grow our teas and spices are paid a living wage. On top of that, we make a donation for every kilo that we purchase back to the fair trade collective. We also, coming from the climate action sector, we use as much sustainable packaging as we can. And there's a lot of stuff that you can't really talk to tea drinkers about, like the fact that we use post-consumer recycled cardboard for our outer cartons. You know, these aren't things that, that are marketing tools, but they're things that are really important because what they mean is that you actually have an opportunity to create impact at every decision point in a business, whether that's choosing your outer cartons, choosing where you warehouse. We warehouse with a company called Wallara Industries who employ mentally disabled workers, whether that's choosing the paper for your office, having people shut down their computers at the end of the day, All of these decision points are opportunities for businesses and for employees of businesses to make impact within the remit of their role. And I think that's been the really fascinating thing for us to realize is it's not just a certification. 
it's not just a donation of a percentage of your profits. Any business can actually create incredible impact. I'm very interested in two things that you've mentioned here. One is that the, and we hear this quite a lot, that there was key players that believed in you from the beginning and that doesn't come by accident. You know, you can't just have an idea and not manifest that into something in the world and then have people buy into it. You, you have to craft a vision. You have to do some legwork at the beginning to create something from nothing and that's what people then buy into. And often the question becomes, how did you discuss this idea at the beginning? You know, how did you show people this is what we want to do? You know, and then also, if you can, how you protect your idea as you discuss it through with people. That's what I was thinking as well, because it's such a great <laughs> idea. What's to stop someone else from being like, oh, I'm going to do that? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> High barriers to entry are really important for a startup. I think if we were doing a Me Too product or a copycat product, it would have been really hard to get to where we are today. But because we had such an innovative idea that was really hard to make, it was then really hard for other people to duplicate. So even if someone had heard our idea, and I'm sure there are lots of big companies who are currently trying to duplicate what we've done, we knew that because it took us two years in R&D, it was going to be really hard for someone else to do exactly what we had done because we had the patent. So there are legal ways to protect your idea. On top of that, creating a brand story is so important to protecting your idea because if someone associates your brand with that idea, no big player can replicate that. Nicole and I talk a lot about, you've probably heard the saying, you know, don't play by their rules. We take that even further and we say, get off their playing field. So we never go head to head with our big competitors. We always play in spaces where other people aren't playing and continuing to innovate and find those niches and talk directly to our customers to understand what they want and what they need means that we actually have a competitive advantage so that we're coming out first to market every time with new ideas rather than trying to play catch up. So I, I think that's a really hard thing to do. And it means that you have to stay nimble, but small businesses tend to be far more nimble than big businesses. So it's actually looking at those things that are quite often seen as disadvantages and flipping the script and saying, this is actually my advantage. Being a small business is my advantage because mm. I can pivot, because I can move, because I can talk directly to people who are engaging with my brand and with my product and understand what's working for them and what's not. Strengths of the underdog. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to have to ask you again what the start mm. of the question was, please. So the start of the question was, and I'll, and I'll give you an example. For people like you mentioned, Alan, at the, at the yes. beginning, that he really kind of bought in and really believed in you. And I mentioned it was an ecosystem around your idea. And that, that kind of incubation, that ecosystem must exist for an idea as big as this to work. You know, you cannot do it on your own. You can't really do any idea on your own. So in fostering or in generating that little ecosystem, incubating your own idea, how did you pitch it to Alan? And to get a bit micro about it, did you do a big email spray? Did you consult your uh, network for people? Like, how did you find them? How did you describe the idea to them? I think actually the best example of this is how we ended up in Woolworth supermarkets. So as I said, we were in two years of research and development and we needed to know whether this product was actually going to get any uptake by the time we finished making it. So about a year in, we booked a meeting with one of the buyers at Woolworths. And we went into him and we said, hey, 
this is this idea we have. Here's this product we're working on. It's a world first. It's natural. It's organic. It's fair trade. We think that people are going to love it. You know, we'd done a lot of market research. We knew that 41% of tea drinkers also took a daily supplement. That's a really high percentage. And when we pitched the idea to consumers, we did focus groups as well as surveys. We were seeing an 85% likely to purchase rate. Normally in market research, if you see a 50% likely to purchase rate, you're like, yes, great. I'm going to move forward with this idea. But we were seeing 85, 90% likely to purchase rates. And we just thought this has to work. This has to be something cool that the market is missing. So we told Mark about it. And we told Mark about the mission of our business. We want to create a world where every worker has a living wage. And you can't do that by being a niche, small product. You have to have that conversation on supermarket shelves, in someone's kitchen, over their daily cup of tea. So we told him all of these things. And he loved the idea. He loved that we were a Melbourne-based business. He loved that we were female-founded. He loved that we were ethical and innovative. And he said, cool, keep me informed. So we went back to him again a second time and we said, here's where we're at. And we still don't have the product. And, <laughs> and he was like, great, really excited about this. Can you let me know when you have it? We went in a third time. What a good dude. <laughs> we went in a third time and we said, here's where we're at. We've got five blends. You know, they have natural vitamins in them. Here are some pre-samples before our first production run so you can try them. And we think we're going to be ready to launch within a few months' time. And so he actually, you know, really backed us, took a bet on us and put us in Woolworths pretty much four months after we sold our first box of tea. Yeah, I was wondering about that because that is fast. Mm. By anyone's clock, that is Mm. unbelievable. And I read that because obviously you won the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year for Victoria, was it? Yes. Yep. And I read that and I was like, how are they in war? They they just started. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Normally you have to do two years of just struggle town before the buyers will even look at you. Yeah. Um, So that's amazing. I really love um, how you talk about the the sense of social justice and how that was there from the very beginning. And it's so wonderful to see so many businesses building their businesses around that rather than focusing solely on profit. What advice do you have for people who want to go down that route? I think being an ethical business at this point is a non-negotiable. There is so much transparency in the global supply chain that there is simply no excuse to put an unethical product onto shelf these days. So while I think there's a lot of value in the model of donating a percentage of your profits, and I think there are some incredible businesses who are doing that, I also think there's a real opportunity for businesses to bake impact into their business model. Being fair trade is absolutely more expensive for us. If you look at the black tea that we purchase, on average, we're paying 260% more per kilo than a conventional tea company because that's what represents a living wage for the farmer. And we're sourcing from small-scale farms. We're talking seven acres down to half an acre family-run farms in Sri Lanka. By building that into our business model from day one, we simply created the margins to support that impact. 
So there was no question of whether we were going to be ethical or whether we weren't. We just made the business model so that it was always possible. And I think if you're starting a new business, you have so many opportunities to look for creative ways to have impact in that model. And I think that's the really exciting path that a lot of Australian businesses are on at the moment. And it's really different and really new. And I'm so excited to see more businesses coming onto the market like that. So when we talk about living wage, that means that the people who are farming or, you know, anywhere along the supply chain can afford to live from the wage that you're paying them. And so does that mean then that some of the other bigger tea companies are paying people far less than that? So they can't live from the money that they're making? I'll tell you the story about how my co-founder, Nicole, got involved in fair trade. So she was traveling in Africa and she was working with World Vision and she went to a project that World Vision was hosting on a tea plantation. And she was working with a family who were receiving international aid so that their children could go to school so that they could have enough nutritious food to feed their family. And both parents were working full time on the tea garden as tea pluckers. So no, they weren't being paid a living wage. They still required international aid to simply survive. So what fair trade does is they set a minimum price per kilo for the goods that we purchase so that we know that it's a minimum price to live essentially for the farmer's collective. That is so sad. It makes me feel sick for all of the cups of tea that I've had where people haven't been paid that. It's also an incredible opportunity to really look back at the practices that we have as consumers. Mm -hmm. You know, a cup of tea is such a relaxing moment during your day. It's such a beautiful moment where you can focus on putting something healthy into your body that's hydrating, that has traditional herbs in it, that, you know, if you're drinking our tea, also has natural nutrients in it. And you also want to know, without a shadow of a doubt, that no child labor has been used in that cup of tea, no slave labor has been used, that the farmers who are growing these beautiful products are getting compensated fairly for that because it's such a beautiful moment for us when we have a cup of tea and how much more wonderful knowing that it's also a beautiful ecosystem that created that cup of tea. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. The Entrepreneurs Program can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way. And you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs Program can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 13 28 46. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn, and lead. There's a price point to suit all budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where our guest today is Julie Hirsch from Elements Vitamin T. You mentioned early in the piece that you had a great relationship with the growers and something that is probably a bit above and beyond what normal um, food manufacturing companies have. I'm really interested because you 
you have shelf space in 2000 stores globally. What are some of the challenges that have come with one going global and to then yay COVID? So with COVID, you hear a lot uh, the buzzword supply chain disruption. What that buzzword doesn't encompass is the people who are involved in that supply chain and who are massively affected by that supply chain disruption. In the tea industry, there was quite a lot of disruption during the harvest, which has been really quite a difficult situation for a lot of growers. And companies are now working in a global supply chain that is completely broken. The shipping lines are broken. The air freight lines are broken. We're a four-person company. You know, there are only four of us. So dealing with that complexity has been incredibly challenging. But the good news for us was that we knew the people growing our tea. So I could pick up the phone and talk to them and say, how's it going in Sri Lanka or in China? And what are the impacts? When are you going to have some stock ready? Can we work together so that, you know, I'm not sending you an order that you can't fill and so that I know what's coming online and if I have any options to tweak or shift or move things around. We also have a fair trade manufacturer in Sri Lanka. So our goods literally go from Kandy, which is a high mountain region in Sri Lanka, down the road to Colombo, where our manufacturer is. They pack all the tea for us and then ship it out from the port of Colombo. So companies for such a long time have been chasing profit margin. And they're flying stuff around the world and shipping it around the world to find the least expensive input and output. Not only is that incredibly carbon intensive, but it meant that when all the shipping lines broke, you couldn't make products. So because we had a really different supply chain that was based on relationships, we got really lucky that we were still able to make product. It didn't mean we haven't seen out of stocks. We certainly have. And, you know, I feel terrible for all the tea drinkers who call me and say, I can't find my favorite bourbon vanilla. I can't find your new urban defense tea. And I kind of have to say, well, it's stuck on the water somewhere. Not really sure where yet, but it's coming. But it it meant we didn't have some of the really huge disruption that other companies have seen. So you mentioned, you know, obviously with the supply issues and you're speaking directly to the farmers to figure out how much of your orders they can fulfil, there was a lot of enthusiasm from from retailers and consumers that after you'd launched and you'd open and you had to open a Series A funding round to support your growth. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and sort of where do you go from here as a business? Like, can you predict more growth? What do you say to your investors and to your consumers? So we sold our first box of tea in September 2018. We got our contract with Woolworths in January 2019. And we had no idea how we were going to pay for enough stock to fill 700 stores. So we immediately realized, okay, we need to do a Series A funding round, um, which is usually your first funding round after you do a seed round. We had built an incredibly strong relationship with the natural vitamin suppliers who create the fruit and herbal extracts for our teas. So again, coming back to this idea of, of working with people who are so bought in on what you're trying to do, they actually contacted us and said, We just heard uh, about the contract you got. Congratulations. 
it sounds like you're going to need some funding. And we said, yes, we are. And they said, great, come talk to us. So they actually ended up filling the entire Series A funding round for us because they just believed in what we were doing so much. And I think that's also such a lesson because we found someone who was not only willing to fund our product, but we found someone who was incredibly values aligned with us, which meant that since we've closed that funding round, it's just been so fun working with them and showing them the growth that we've been able to achieve based on that funding. You know, we secured Holland and Barrett about six months after we launched in Woolworths, which is a supermarket chain in the UK. We got a contract with a US chain store and we've got interest from distributors in various countries around the world. And I think there's so much opportunity for us um, globally dealing with the complications of exporting and uh, doing that with a four-person team is certainly a challenge. We're very efficient and very busy. Uh, we'll probably have to start hiring at some point soon. But it's, it's so wonderful to work on a product that we not only believe in because we're the target market, but we also know is, is good for the people who are drinking it. It's good for the people who are growing it. And, and we get to tell that story to retailers and tea drinkers around the world. Julie, you are a cool customer. I'm going to give you that. <laughs> you are a cool customer. 700 stores and supply and, you know, series A funding rounds and your description of that whole process was it was really fun. And we were talking to these people. I'm pretty sure that, that sinks a lot of people on the nerve side of things. So well done for you. It was terrifying. Um, yeah. It was absolutely terrifying. Um, you know, going into pitch and saying the value of your company as female founders, that was so hard to, to look at someone and say, we've built something and we believe it's worth this amount and we're going to grow it by this amount. And we want to be the go-to natural vitamin tea in the world. You've got to own that. It's funny that you mentioned that you, you know, that you were cognizant of the fact that you were two female founders because let's, 3% of venture capital funding goes to female founders. Were you, and, and I wasn't going to ask this, but were you cognizant of that? Did it make you nervous? I mean, it's quite an astonishing figure. We knew the stats going into it. Um, we had had a few conversations with venture capital firms in Australia, and we knew immediately we weren't going to be fundraising with them. You know, it, there, there wasn't anything particularly aggressive. It was simply that we didn't feel values aligned with these firms. One of them made a comment when we came in, oh, it's so nice to see women in the office. Full stop. What does that we mean? Thought, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and we thought, oh, It's a bit cringe, okay. isn't it? Yeah. Not sure I'm giving you a percentage of my company. Mm. Um, <laughs> we're the tea ladies, but we're not those kind of tea ladies, okay? Yeah, world's, exactly. world's worst first business date <laughs> opener. Yeah. <laughs> But when we went to meet with Organic X Labs, you know, they, they're an incredibly innovative company to start with. They created a patented water extraction process for their vitamins that we were absolutely in love with. We were pitching to them and we've got a 1% uh, purpose contribution of our um, turnover. And one of the Organic X Labs reps asked us, 
can you tell me more about this? And I immediately got defensive and said, you know, it's really important to us. Yes, we're fair trade. Yes, we're already giving 2% of our turnover to fair trade, but we also want to have this fund so that we can work on some of the gender diversity issues around fair trade. And he stopped me and he said, no, I really like this. Can you tell me more about the impact you're going to have with this? And we just went, yeah, this is right. So you mentioned um, that you've got the four of you now and when you started it was just you and Nicole doing everything. So what does the company structure look like? So we do a lot of partnerships, as you can probably hear from our story, bringing people on the journey with us, finding experts in their field who can fill gaps in our skill set is really important. So Nicole, my co-founder and I are very active in the business you know, we still do sample packing on the weekend for people who want to try our tea. <laughs> um, so we're very hands-on founders. We also have some admin and bookkeeping support. And we do have a professional board of directors, which has been incredibly important to us to know that we're running the business in a way that's responsible and that's set for growth. And yeah, we're we're probably going to keep growing. Um not sure how yet, but uh, post-COVID, we're going to be launching in the U.S. So that's a big market. Um, <laughs> so we'll need to find some support over there, I imagine. I'm always fascinated when you have co-founders, mm-hmm. how you split the work. Because to me, um, a lot of the media that I've seen is, you know, primarily yourself. So I'm guessing maybe Nicole might not like doing this kind of stuff so much. So Nicole and I have really clearly defined roles that we started with and that we continue to have. And that's been very important for maintaining the pace of work that we have to do to be growing like we are. So I am responsible for everything up until the product is on shelf. Nicole is responsible for getting the product on shelf and everything afterwards. And that's the split. So I really love um, the branding and the packaging. It's so beautiful. How long did it take to to crack that? Well, we always say because we had a two-year research and development process, we ended up with two years creating our packaging and tweaking it and shifting it and testing it. We had a lot of time on our hands while people were you know, running trials at factories on the other side of the world for us. So we did a lot of market testing and we also did a lot of talking to our ideal consumer. So we launched the social media probably six months before we ever did our first production run, which means we had six months to test concepts. And and we still do that on social media. If you're following us on Instagram, you will see stories where we put up two front of packs and we say, which one do you like better? Where we put up envelope designs and say, which one would you like? Tag designs, flavor profiles. We test everything with our market because we're a small team. We don't know, you know, we've got our own tastes and we're certainly tea drinkers. So we know what we like, but we also know that we've got an incredible community of people who love our product, believe in what we're doing and are really honest with us when they do and don't like things. And so that's an incredible asset for our business. And I don't understand why big brands don't do this as well. Um, you know, it saves a lot of money on your market testing. <laughs> I think leveraging the collective intelligence that comes along with social media marketing is, you know, something that is so easy to do and it's so beneficial. You mentioned Instagram in there. You know, for a company your size and for people that are growing so rapidly, what are the most effective 
marketing channels for you and why? So we hyper-focus on areas where our tea drinkers are already looking and especially in areas where our competitors aren't playing. So Instagram is a great example of that. Um, Facebook for us has become quite flooded with competitors who can outspend us 10 to 1. So there's no point in us focusing on that. Whereas Instagram, you can still get some organic reach. So that's a really great place for us to talk to our tea drinkers. LinkedIn has also been really interesting for us. Um, If you think about our competitors, they're mostly really big companies. I'm talking billion dollar multinational companies on the tea aisles at supermarkets. There are only about three tea companies in total that are still smaller players who have founders. So LinkedIn, we, we have founders, you know, we have people you can talk to who are behind the brand, who can take feedback on board and have a conversation with you about what we're doing and why. So that's a huge advantage for us. And so we always look for those little places where we can be different and lean into that difference. When we first closed the Series A funding round, we actually had a really funny experience because we, you know, we'd raised over a million dollars. We were like, yes, we can finally print glossy collateral. This is going to be so great. And we got these beautifully designed cards and we sent samples out with them. And we're like, yes, we're finally professionals. <laughs> and we got a terrible response, like 10% of the posts and the comments and the reactions that we would normally get from a sampling campaign. And it was because we were acting like a big brand and we're not. We're a small brand We're we still hand packed the samples, even though they were on glossy collateral. So we went back to printing off our letters from our office printer and we got such a better response from that because it was authentic. It was who we actually are and where we actually are. And people can tell. They always can. Yeah. And people want to support uh, small, independently founded organizations. That's what they want to do. It's that, that sense of here's my small amount of power that I have with my money that I want to spend. And this is how I'm going to spend it. Do you know what, though? There is so much power in the money that we spend on our weekly grocery shop. Every dollar is a vote for the world that you want. Yeah. That is such, oh, that is so poetic. That is very poetic. I did not come up with that. That is someone else's line. But it's incredibly true. Companies respond to dollars. And if you're shifting your dollar to ethical companies, to sustainable companies, to innovative companies, other companies are going to realize that and they are going to change their behavior quickly. Mm. Consumers have all the power in, in today's world. And so then what sort of drinks or food are you moving on to next? Well, we just launched a new product. So speaking of the Instagram family, uh, at the start of COVID, we actually went out and asked people what would you like? Um, You know, we've got some time (laughs) on our hands, not really going anywhere for a while. And we just got the most brilliant ideas back from our community. So we just launched the first one of those, which is called Urban Defense. And it's a pomegranate, raspberry and rooibos tea with zinc that's derived from the guava plant. And it's just, I mean, I don't play favorites with with my creations, obviously, 
but it might be my favorite. And that one just launched on Woolworth's uh, shelves. So I'm so excited to see what people think of it. I think it's important to say that we don't skip over the fact that when you co-founded Elements, you're 26. And that's young, so long ago for a lot of us. And, you know, it's it, it's quite an extraordinary sort of age. Um, did you always know that you were going to do something like this? And being so young, you have an opportunity in today's universe where we talk about leadership a lot to decide what kind of mindful leadership style you want to have and what kind of leader you want to be. Can you walk us through a bit of that? Only 1% of businesses are founded by women under 30. Um, I did not know that I was going to found a business. That was as much a surprise to me as anyone. But I started my career actually opening and running a voter registration office in the 2012 US election cycle. So I had just graduated from university and someone thought it was a great idea to send me down to North Carolina in charge of a canvassing staff of 35 and try to register as many voters as we could before the voter deadline. I was working seven days a week, just crazy hours. And I think starting my career by doing that, I had no idea if I was going to be able to do it or not. Someone else had confidence in me, which was really great but I did not have that confidence in myself. And to be able to get to the end of it and say, okay, I didn't have the skills going into it that I needed, but I was able to ask enough questions, find those skills, work hard enough to make it work, I think was so important for the rest of my career. There is always failure when you're starting a new business. You will will fail lots of things. And it's about being able to get up again after your big ambitious dream has punched you in the face and say, okay, I'm just going to keep going here and see what I can do. So coming out of that voter registration experience, going into the climate action space and ending up as deputy director for the AYCC, again, I didn't have all the skills that I needed. I was in my early 20s when I joined AYCC but I loved what they were doing. Their vision is to create a generation-wide movement to solve the climate crisis. And I believed wholeheartedly in that and was willing to work incredibly hard to further that mission. And so when Nicole and I joined forces and we had this product that we loved and this mission that I thought could really change a small part of the world, I just thought, all right, well, here we go again. Let's see what we can do. Now, what advice do you have for people that have a great business idea and are thinking about taking that next step? So ever since I won the Telstra Award, it's been really interesting because is to understand that the mistakes that you make along the way do not diminish how far you've come. There have been so many things that have gone wrong in our startup journey. And it was really hard not to focus on those things and say, oh, I could have done this better or I failed at that or this thing went wrong by actually looking at those as as part of the journey. And honestly, as the most valuable part, because you learn things from those from those failures, it actually really freed me up to say we have come really far We have a really far way to go to fulfill our mission, but that's okay because we've learned so much along the way. 
And I think that mental reframing just helps you to push and try things and change things and go for it. So I really hope that you know, resonates with even one person listening to this. It resonates with me. I'm going to apply it to every yeah. part of my life. It is. And, you know, it's almost a positive affirmation of sorts. And that's another really common thing that you, I think you find with really successful founders is that mindset and that positive affirmation. They almost tell themselves as much as they tell other people. One of the things I say a lot to myself is failing at something does not make you a failure and succeeding at something does not make you a success. Those are all external. It's all about what is actually internal. What do you believe? And where are you right now? Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're an absolute legend. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you this week. Thank you both so much. It's, it was so much fun to chat with you. Thanks for listening. Next Generation Innovators is a future women podcast made in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Entrepreneurs Program. And it's produced by Fancy Films. Join us again next week and make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could share, rate and review the podcast as it really does help people find us. See you then. <laughs>